0: And So this morning God I ask as we get into this final part of the series Lord that you would let it be the foundation of the church you've called us to be. Lord we would see our roles individually in this church but God corporately as a body we would see that calling that you placed in our lives. God I just ask as we spend this time together in your word that you speak to our lives our heart that you flow freely and we'll give you glory in Christ's name amen. You know we've been in Acts chapter 2 and and I want to read it one last time, um, this foundational verse of, of what we understand the New Testament church to be. Um, last week we looked at what happened in the upper room with 120 people who were waiting on God to do something incredible. And he did. He showed up. He indwelled them. Uh, it was an incredible thing. So now here we are um, at the conclusion of God moving Peter preaches a sermon, 3,000 people give their lives to Christ, and we have the formation of what the New Testament church is. And this is what we read as the fellowship of the believers, the very first church, in Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so if an authentic church is, is one that God does signs and wonders through, uh, is a body of believers that he's continually adding to them, then how do we etch our future out in that same capacity? You know, in 1953, there was an invention of a toy um, by this French electrician man who just accidentally developed it because he was putting in a light switch and there was some aluminum uh, particles behind it. And as he was working on it, he realized that what he had Struck in the back of it would show up on the front of it through this, uh, this aluminum stuff. And, and so he thought this could be a toy. And so he developed it in 1953. In 1959, this Ohio company bought the toys, uh, the toy from him for, at that time, $20,000, which would be like $200,000 to us today. And then they changed the name of it. He called it the Magic Screen. They changed the name of it and called it the Etch-A-Sketch. And their target was kids, and so they bought it, and they put it out on the market. And as you know, it's one of the top-selling toys in history. Uh, it's amazing how accidentally all these things get built. But I'm going to tell you, uh, I have never been great with an Etch-A-Sketch. Right? And I don't know if you've ever had that friend who could just do incredible things with it, and you're like, I don't even think that's possible. And um, I was never that way because if you ever did draw the Something that you thought was beautiful, somebody would bump it and shaking it up would clear it out. And you're like, um, but what I did want to show you is I, I did have four pictures of beautifully created pieces of art from an etch sketch not by me. And so let me show you the first one. Uh, I thought that one was pretty cool. It looks like somebody's reaching on the outside, uh, doing an Etch-a-Sketch. Um, the next one, obviously, um, some of you women grew up loving him. Uh, and men grew up wanting to be him, and that's Elvis. Um, America, right? Uh, there, And then America, literally, uh, is the sketching of, of all these different scenes from America. Uh, that's incredible, because I'm going to be honest with you. When, when I grab an Etch-A-Sketch, the appeal of it is the blank canvas, and this dream that I can create anything I want on this canvas, uh, but the reality is it's a lot more difficult to create something than how people make it look. Right? If you watch Toy Story, um, and, and if you remember this, this is a big theological moment in the movie where Woody and Buzz have this draw-off on the Etch-A-Sketch, and, and it's an incredible uh, portrait that they draw. It's an impossible thing to do. But the blank canvas is what appeals to me to see somebody create something amazing and go, I can do that. Now, when I start, I realize that I can't do that, but it's the hope that's found in a blank canvas, that I can etch anything I want on this canvas. And and this dream of creating a better portrait is what the foundation of the church is all about, that a group of 120 people, would hang out in an upper room for 10 days because Jesus told them to wait there. And they all believed that whatever was coming in that upper room was going to be the thing that etched their beautiful future moving forward. And so they waited, and they waited. And then we find as God did something incredible in their lives, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit that they left out, and they etched out what their future was going to be by the leading of God. And as a church, that's the challenge that we face today is that God has placed a blank canvas amongst us. We call that our community. And he's asked us in that blank canvas to etch out the future that he's placed in our heart. But it's a pretty difficult thing. As a matter of fact, when we flip a little bit further in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, we find how they began to etch out a future that was even greater than they imagined. Acts 5, 12 through 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And You read that, man, that's an incredible verse. You're like, that's what it means to etch my future out. But we read about Peter in there and we go, but that's Peter. I can't do those things, right? The same man that we just read about, we read this same story from him in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 and 22. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. And so a man who they would place people on the sides of the road because he was so filled with God's power. This is him who when God himself spoke to him and said, no, I got to go suffer and I got to die. He's like, come here, Lord, uh, you are not going to go through those things. Trust me, this is the same guy. And so Peter, who refused to accept that Jesus was leaving them, is the one who's leading the etching of their future that we read about in the church. The same men who scattered in fear at the cross were now uh, boldly proclaiming Christ. And this incredible transformation is what we know as the identity of the church. We know the identity of the church is these sold out bold men and women who believe with their own lives that Christ did incredible things and were willing to put their life on the line. And now it comes to us. The future of our church is being etched out even at this very moment. Um, The story that would be told about us in history is unfolding right now. And I know the easy thing as we talk about etch a sketch would be, hang on a second, God, shake it up and be like, all right, we're starting again. But that's not quite how things work. We don't get that opportunity. God is allowing us to write our story, letting our story unfold as it is right now. But the beautiful part of this truth is that we can etch it out through the blank canvas of our community that even now as God cultivates our hearts we can look at our community and go, I see a need. I I have to do something. And we begin to etch out in the community something incredible for God. And and so I want to pose this question based upon the whole series that we've been together. If we stopped playing church and became the church, what kind of future could we etch out? You know, I was reading a story about a church in Washington DC called First Rock Baptist Church and and they're literally changing their community, literally. Um, so their pastor had this heart for what was being play, what was plaguing their community. He looked at low-income housing and, and there not being accessibility to it. And he said, well, it's, it's our job as a church to intervene there. And, and he looked at some of the issues with drug stuff. And, and he said, how can our church plug in here? And he got involved in the community. And, and he would look at a neighborhood who had kids who were doing bad things. And all they needed was somebody to fix a football field. And they tell this story that that he was looking at this housing project and the football field was, a kid couldn't even play on it. And so kids are doing things that they're not supposed to do. There's nothing to occupy their time. And so he goes to the housing community He says, what can I do about getting this football field fixed? And they said, don't talk to us, talk to Parks and Rec. He goes to Parks and Rec and they go, that's not our field. You got to talk to the housing authority. And he goes back and forth. And and finally, in frustration, he goes to the city mayor and he says, we got to do something. And the mayor himself personally came down and made sure that project got fulfilled. People in the community are talking about how his church is changing a community because he looked at a need and he etched out the future of their church. And so when I asked the question of our church, what would happen if we stopped playing church and we became the church that we read about in the New Testament? We would transform our community. We would look at needs and go, how can we help? We would look at situations and go, how can we intervene? We would look at struggles and go, what can I do to meet this problem that's facing? And as I read about this church, I realized that they took serious what Jesus said in Matthew 25 when he lays out this beautiful story about the least of these. And he says, if you've done this to the least of these, you've done this to me also. And they looked at that and said, if I can do this for them, I'm doing it really for my Savior they grasp this idea that God doesn't want us just to play church. He expects us to be the church. So if we really believe that Satan doesn't etch our community's future, but God does, using the local church, then what are some of the tools that we need to tackle this reality? Acts chapter 4 verses 32 through 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The first tool in etching out our our church's future is unity. As we read about the New Testament church, we find a word that pops up quite a bit, and it's unity. Uh, or we find it exemplified for us, it's unity. Um, they were unified when they received the Holy Spirit. They were unified when they faced persecution. They were unified when they ate and when they gave an offering. And sadly, they were even unified in death. Listening to that is a crazy thing because I can stand with you in a lot of things, but if you say, hey, let's go out here and die that might be where I have to determine where we are in this situation. But they were to that point. I was reading in preparation of this, some of, even some of the later church fathers, like Justin Martyr, who we know was a martyr, uh, and, and, and some of these men around that era who was a generation removed from Jesus but still had kind of contact with those who were in that era And he looked at the Roman authorities and he said, you need to investigate Christians before you persecute us because you're going to find that we're not guilty. But if you truly search and you find that we're guilty, then we will be punished to the fullness of the law. What an incredible statement. If I'm one of his followers, I'll go, wait a second, you don't speak for me now, right? But unity meant that if death was the cost, then we were willing to pay that. I... I love to hear a good war story, like a, a real war story. And the other day I was I was listening to one is this is this Army Special Forces uh guy was talking about this time that they went into a kind of on a covert mission and they went into this community where you had this this leader trying to overthrow the government and take over and, and their mission was to kind of reinforce the current regime and train them up and prepare them. And so they went in with thirteen Special Forces guys Knowing that this man had an army of 600 people and within days They made sure that he did not overthrow the government and and I'm listening to this incredible story going Nowhere in math even in Holmes County math is 13 ever greater than 600, right? however when he tells the story, you're like, man, 13 is great. And, and the determination of what made it great, they were unified. Every day that I go to the prison, we're outnumbered 1,500 to 200 staff. I mean, at any moment, they outnumber us easily. But what makes uh, the incredible Atmosphere that we work in is because we're unified and we're all working towards a similar purpose. And it means that 200 can control 1,500 because we're unified and they're not. And this is what made the church so powerful at the beginning. 120 people is not a lot to start a new religion with. But 120 people changed the whole world. And the reason they changed the world was because they were unified. Mm -hmm. Unified people change the world whether we talk about religious or we talk about secular or war whatever the case may be unified people change the world the uh, the first church stayed unified in the message of Christ and etched out a miraculous future and for us if we're to etch out a future in this blank canvas community then we must be unified but unity is not a natural thing As a matter of fact, when we talk about the lust of the flesh, unity is not one of those things, right? I mean, unity is something that God breathes into us, but it's not something that we are naturally born with. Uh, When we read about this natural disposition that we have towards sin, we find that actually the natural reaction of a human is to rebel, right? When your kids are young and you say, go clean your room, and they go, I'm not going to do it. That's rebellion, and they're born with that as a part of who they are, and and it's through relationship with God that He begins to change us and make us unified. Our Creator, when He's talking about the design for marriage, He gives us this urgent command in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so what has just unfolded here is that God has created Adam. He's now just created Eve out of the rib of Adam. And he looks at him and he said, for this reason, you two will become one. Because it's not natural for unity amongst the human race. If you don't believe me, you can look at how divided our country is right now and how divided our world is. It's because that's natural for us. It's natural for me to be in opposition of other people. It's not natural for me to be unified. And that's why unity is the call of Christ to the church. Now there were some ways that unity was cultivated within the believers of that time. They spent time together and it unified them. They prayed together and it unified them. They did ministry together and it unified them. They spent more life together, more of their life together, and it unified them. My appeal for you to attend church has less to do with my ego and everything to do with our unity. I don't want you to come to church because it feels good to see you sitting there. It does. I want you to come to church because it grows us closer together. And a unified church can change a community and more importantly can change a world. And if you don't believe that, then being a part of a body has no meaning to you. And so missing is okay. I don't, I don't need to be there. I mean, they don't need me. But when you realize how a body functions and you realize the importance of all pieces being unified together, you realize that apart from each other, we are nothing. But when we're together, we are life-changing uh, vehicle that God uses. We become unified the more time we spend together, the more ministry we do together, and the more times of prayer we share together. And our unity is what will propel us towards etching an amazing future. The second tool in etching our church's future is sacrifice. Uh, I want to read to you the verse that I just read out of Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul, unified. And no one said that any of these things belonged to him Uh, was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Notice that the mindset of the church was that nothing was theirs. They looked at everything they had and said, none of this is mine. If I need to sell my house so that every people, every other person can have something, I'll do that. If it means I sell my land, I'll do it. Whatever it means, I'm willing to do that because nothing I have is mine. They had a sacrificial mindset because they understood that they would have nothing if it weren't due to God. And so therefore for them to sacrifice was nothing. But sacrifice does not always present itself in some monetary gift. God expects us to freely give back to him that which he has blessed us with. So there is that expectation. But anytime we hear sacrifice, immediately we hear dollar signs. Oh God, he's going to ask for more money. Uh, That's not what God always asks of us. There is a sacrifice there. But he also expects us to sacrifice our prejudice nature our presuppositions of other people, he expects us to sacrifice those things. Uh, The early church ventured into areas uh, that was new as they etched out their future. They went and pursued people that at the time were kind of outcasts. They pursued the sick, widows, orphans, and even Gentiles. And though their whole culture had told them to avoid that, they pursued that sacrificing their prejudices and their presuppositions of what these people were. They laid that aside as God began to transform that community. Sacrifice is a tough thing. It's not a natural thing. The very first sin was pride, meaning that it's a struggle that we all are going to have because it kind of formed what we understand sin to be. So if pride is a struggle that we all have, it means sacrifice is tough. I can sacrifice for myself as long as I get gained from it, but the sacrifice for others is not a part of who I am naturally. So sacrifice is tough. If we were to fast forward from those verses uh, and start into chapter 5, we would read the story of a man named Ananias and his wife named Sapphira, and they struggle to sacrifice what had been promised to God. We read the verses that we just had and everybody's selling their stuff and they're laying it at the apostles' feet as they're determining who needs what. And then we get to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And we find that they sell their land like everybody else. But they decide to hold back a little bit for themselves. And so Peter kind of confronts first Ananias about it. And he, and he asks him, did, did, did you leave some for yourself or did you give it all? And lies, and God strikes him dead. Then his wife comes in. She doesn't know what's just happened, so he asks her the same question. She lies. God strikes her dead. Now, God isn't going to necessarily strike you dead if you're not a sacrificial person. But what it illustrates is the struggle as humans we have, but also how serious God takes sacrifice. He takes it so serious that he himself sacrificed his own life so that we could be in relationship with him. So sacrifice is a very serious thing. And sacrifice is an expectation that God has of the church. Specifically an expectation he has of our church. That he expects when someone walks into our doors that doesn't fit the mold of what we think a church person should look like. That our prejudices die right there and we welcome them with open arms. That's what sacrifice is. And, And the unwillingness to sacrifice what we see exemplified in Acts 5 leads to death. And if you want to know the number one cause of church death all across our country and our world, is the unwillingness to sacrifice their own desires. I don't want that kind of music. I don't want that kind of preaching. I don't want people dressing that way. I don't want this. I don't want that. And what we find is a dead church because God goes to them and says, if you can't sacrifice, I can't use you. And so they're dead and nothing good's happening. They're not vibrant and they're not thriving and and God says, I'll just use this church. I mean, they, they, they want that stuff. They don't care what people look like, smell like, talk like, act like. They just want them in church. Because we know that God will clean them the way that He sees fit. The vibrant, life-changing, future-etching culture of the New Testament church was consumed with sacrificial people. People that looked at life and the people in their community and saw their sacrifice as a way to help them out. And it is our desire that we become sacrificial in our giving, serving, and presupposition of others. And as our future is, as we begin drawing individuals into our midst that have issues, and we are to embrace them as Christ embraced us. And my final point that I want to make has nothing to do with a tool, but rather a reality. Um, and is that sometimes God clears the canvas for a new etching. And I don't mean that God wipes us out, Like he's like, ah, I don't know if I like this Goldie Springs swipe. And then all of a sudden it's a new church. What it means that is sometimes God takes us in a new direction. God looks at us and goes, ah, it's not what I want their future to be etched out. I got a better thing for them. And he just kind of shakes the canvas and it's clear again. And he allows us to etch a new future. Now, I was recently reading about a Southern Baptist church in Arlington, Texas that just went through this. Um, The pastor had been in the church for many years until one day he was at a local school and he realized that his once all-white community was changing. And so he decided that because the canvas had been shaken, they needed to etch a new future. And so the pastor realized that he had to be the catalyst for changing. So for eight years, he led the church in etching out a new future, moving away from their target that had always been since the foundation of their church in the 50s, they went to something different. And, and, and when he was talking about it, he said it was one of the most difficult things that he and his church leaders had been through because people don't like that kind of change. But sometimes when God changes it, he also changes it personally. And so as God was shaking the canvas of the church up to allow them to etch a new thing out, he also began to shake the canvas of the pastor. And so the pastor leads the church through eight years of preparation for this new future. And God calls him to retire. And he takes the next two and a half years to transition himself out and to transition the first ever Hispanic pastor into their church. And now 30% of their church is non-white people. Sometimes God shakes our canvas because our community needs something different. Our community may have needed this for that season, but he looks at us and goes, that's not what they need right now, let me, let me kind of shake it up, I want you to etch something new out, and I personally believe that that's where God has brought our church, is that he's looked at our community, the things that plague our community, the frustration I'm sure that each of you have when you read the paper, and you find this person's been arrested for that, and you go, man, it's so heartbreaking, and so I believe that God has changed our future, he wants us to etch something different out, That isn't the mission any longer, and so God is shaking us, and and shaking is not a fun thing. Shaking is not a fun thing because it's a little uncomfortable for us, and when you begin to shake, you lose things along the way. Some people leave, and some attributes of your church change, and so you lose some of this, and you lose some of that, and, and you get to where God wants you, but you realize that the shaking that you went through was so uncomfortable that you lost some people along the way. But, 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 but let me tell you what a transformational church looks like through the story of an incredible man that we read about in Acts chapter 7. Um, We're going to be in verse number 54, but the first 53 verses is literally Stephen preaching this incredible message about Christ. And he's taking some of the beliefs that all these Jews have grown up with and he's challenging them with it now in the face of Christ. And he's talking to them about the Holy Spirit. He's been a part of that transformation. And so he's looking at his community. God's shaking it up. He's led him in a new way. And so Stephen is preaching boldly to all the people. And then we, we get to verse number 54. And we read the incredible ending of a man's life. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged. And they grind their teeth at him. But he, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven... And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of the Father. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens open. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at Him. Then they cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Who we would come to know as Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That is the embodiment of what a church looks like. The unified message of the gospel. The sacrifice of his own life for other people. And God etching a new future out of that. There was a man there who held the garments of those stoning Stephen. Who would later be impacted by this story. Paul references being there. This was an impactful thing for him. Little did Stephen know in that moment as God was shaking the canvas up. And he was sacrificing through unity his life. That what was about to be etched in the canvas was a young man named Saul who is transformed to Paul who then changes not only the Jewish people but goes out into all the world. And even today we read his 13 letters and we are impacted by what happened. And it's all this ripple effect from him being present from some man named Stephen who we don't know anything about other than that he was the first martyr. That's what we know about him. I mean, I want to be known for a lot of things. I don't want to be known for the first person to die, right? You can know, if you want to know me as the strongest person, that would be a very fair depiction of who I am. But I don't want to be the first person who died. And that's what Stephen is known for. But what we don't realize is how his legacy lived through a man named Paul. Being the church that God has called us to be when we stop playing church, it costs us some things. It costs us friendships and relationships and it costs us it costs us financially and it costs us spiritually as we're pouring into other people. and we even find that it can cost us our very life. But isn't it worth it? Like I'm so thankful that there was individuals in my life who steered me in the direction of God, who I believe would have gave their very own life to make sure that I encountered God. And if that was so important to them, shouldn't it be an important thing to me? I mean, we've been asked as God's church to realize the cost and to be ready for that possibility. So the question I want to close with this morning is, are you ready? knowing the cost, to etch a new future with our church, in our community. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for your love and your grace. God, thank you for the incredible words of of Paul that we've read through the series, the incredible words of Moses that we've read through the series. Uh, But God, thank you for the incredible desire that Luke had to record history where we can read about what an authentic church looks like and today God each one of us with our hearts open want nothing more than to be the church you've called us to be and God as I look at our community and and as meth seems to plague it and God you see divorce and you see the the separation of kids from families and, and you see our community slowly being torn apart God you've called us to come in and save that situation So God, as we etch that future, it's uncomfortable, it's not fun, but God, it's a calling. And So help us to be strong to that. With every head bowed, every eye closed, before you can be a part of etching that future as a church, you have to realize that there has to be a future etched inside of your soul. And that future is one of a reunion between a redemptive God and a fallen person. And today, that's the most beautiful story that can be written in your heart is that God can come in and begin to write a new story on you and etch out a future that you couldn't even dream of. But the sacrifice that we talked about, that's all he asks of you, is to say, I can't do this any longer. When I do, I fail. I need you to lead me. If you're here this morning, I want to give you that opportunity that you would say, I'm so struggling right now. I can't take it any longer. I I feel like everything I do is a failed attempt. I have good news for you. There is a creator who's here this morning who wants to wrap you in your arms. He wants to make your life okay. Not make all the struggles you go through go away. He wants to make your life okay. Knowing that the promised future of eternity with him outweighs any struggle you can go through. As the brace team plays, I'll be up front. If you want to come forward, I want to be with you and pray with you. Or if you're here this morning, you go, I'm struggling with with my role. And church, if that's you, I want to pray with you as well and, and be with you at the altar as you discover what God's purpose is for your life.